This is Yawa Radio. Warm welcome to the Yawa Radio podcast. The Yawa Radio podcast is an opportunity again to listen to one of our inspirational, thought-provoking interviews that we have brought to the listeners of Yawa Radio. Yawa Radio is online 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We are your well-being and happiness radio station, bringing the feel-good feeling to every single day of the week. Check us out at yawaradio.co.uk. Now sit back and enjoy this podcast from the Yawa Radio team. Welcome to Jordan Space. Every fortnight, you can join me, your host, Steve Phillip, alongside Danielle and Paul from the Jordan Legacy team, together with some very special guests for an hour of conversation, music, and above all, hope. Welcome to Jordan Space. This show does discuss themes of suicide, and we'd encourage you to take care of yourself by stepping away from the show at any point, should you find the content triggering or uncomfortable to listen to. For support, please visit our website, thejordanlegacy.com, and our help menu options. Shortly, we'll be introducing this week's guest. But before then, let's say hello to my trusty co-hosts, Danielle and Paul. Thanks for joining me, as always. How are you both this week? Good to be here again, as usual, Steve. Good to have you, Paul. Danny, good to have you back as well. You doing okay? Yeah, good, thank you. Well, when we recorded our last show with our guest, Lee Fryatt, None of us could have imagined the news which was about to unfold and the death of the Queen. Obviously, there's been a huge outpouring of grief, and I think many people have been surprised by how the Queen's passing has impacted them personally, even those who wouldn't consider themselves to be a monarchist or a huge supporter of the royal family. How has the Queen's passing affected you both? Um, yeah, I, th- I think for me, and, and something which I've heard resonating with a lot of people is the feeling that it's someone close to you that's that's passed away. Um, even if you didn't know her personally, which obviously many people didn't, I think it was the sense of the nation's grief and, and also the end of an era. As when someone close to you passes away, um, it just reminds you that, that nothing lasts forever and we've lost a constancy in our lives. Um, and it's a reminder for many have lost loved ones that they're not here for monumental moments like this. So I think it's a reminder in many ways for people for lots of reasons. How about you, Paul? Yeah, I think it, it affects people in different ways and, it, and it's seen in different ways and felt in different ways, isn't it? So it was a huge moment in history. Um, so it's obviously going to have that kind of impact on an emotional level. It affected people in different ways. Uh, I was thinking about it, you know, it made me think lots of different things about the, the, the members of the royal family and Harry and William and thinking back to them losing their mum in 97 and the big outpouring of grief then, which was more unexpected then perhaps than, than this time around with the Queen. But uh, also, of course, at the funeral, uh, that affected people in different ways as well. And I spent the day, my wife and I spent the day with uh, our auntie Muriel, uh, just coming up to her 90th birthday, who again as Danny says felt very close to the Queen uh, and we spent time talking about the loss of her husband um, so it, it, it and I thought about the loss of my granddad the loss of my dad you know so yeah it impacts people in a whole range of different ways. 
I think one of the things I found interesting, uh, you know, at the very big beginning, really, when the Queen's death was uh, announced, I saw lots of events immediately being cancelled, uh, many of which were actually related to World Suicide Prevention Day, which, of course, was happening that weekend that the Queen died. Um, some of those events I was actually due to speak at myself. And I noticed, um, yeah, there were a number of cancellations, but I also noticed that Andy, Mike and Tim, for example, the three dads walking, decided to carry on with their planned walk. There were other organisations uh, such as Andy's Man's Club that had events planned and they carried on. Um, I, I just saw this this odd sort of situation where people, some are saying we must cancel uh, out of respect, others saying we'll continue on, but do it in a respectful way. And, you know, just around this whole sense of loss, I could imagine those who wanted to contribute towards the World Suicide Prevention Day events that were cancelled and those who organised those must have felt a huge sense of loss as well. Absolutely. And, and I think it was really hard really hard for those people who'd spent months and months and months planning events for World Suicide Prevention Day and got a response of, well, of course, we've just had to cancel. So on the one hand, it was saying, let's be respectful to the Queen and to the Royal Family and so on. Um, but there was also a lack of compassion uh, around those people struggling with loss, struggling with loss of loved ones to suicide, just being told your event has been cancelled. No discussion. No consideration of any other perspectives, just cancelled. And, and, and Danny, again, you know, just talking about very specifically the cancellation of World Suicide Prevention Day events. Um, you know, what's your take on the kind of sense of of loss people might have felt? Yeah, well, sort of, and linked to what what Paul said, um, I did feel sorry for everyone that had organised WSPD events, but and then they had to make the difficult decision as to whether to go ahead with the planned events, but. As we said, and as we heard others saying, um, despite monumental events such as this, you know, we still carry on losing people to suicide. And, and we've said the risk is maybe greater at times like this because of the impact that grief can have on people and the risk of people losing hope during times of uncertainty. So I think it's really just as important, if not more important at times like this to still have things going on. This week's theme for Jordan Space is, is about coping with loss. Uh, we know that loss and grief is going to form a part of everyone's life at some stage, but clearly some losses are going to have a greater impact than others. Uh, Paul, you know, loss is something you've looked into as a part of your studies to become a counsellor. That's right, Steve. I mean, I chose when I did my counselling qualifications to, um, to take loss and grief as one of my specialisms and did an advanced study merge on it. And it was a real eye-opener because it, it sort of brought things to attention that I hadn't really considered before about the different kinds of loss experiences that people have, the compounded effect of loss experiences. Most people have lots of different loss experiences in their lives, but they only really become conscious of it when there's a big loss event. And, and usually it is the death of somebody very close to them. Um, but then they, they suddenly realise that there's actually been other loss experiences in the past. Uh, and, it, it, you know, in the studies, we went back to you know, childhood and people losing a pet and, you know, it, it, all these things impact on people and they kind of catch up with them. And obviously the loss of the Queen uh, wasn't just the loss of the Queen for people. It was that, uh, that trigger of previous losses and maybe losses that hadn't been grieved or, or, or sort of mourned at the time for some people. 
and then they're seeing this big national morning event and again it brings makes people think about it but also of course with regard to suicide there's there's a bigger impact uh, for, for people uh, who lose a loved one to suicide than, than for other uh, forms of loss which you, know, you well know but also the triggers for suicide are often lost experiences it's people uh, losing a, a job losing income losing a business losing a relationship losing access to a child it's a whole series of lost experiences that people have and one of them that we studied was loss of opportunity people feeling a, a sense of a loss of being able to do something that was very important to them. And of course, that took me back to World Suicide Prevention Day with people feeling that that day was so important to them and it had been taken away from them. So as, as Danny says, that will have impacted people on that day. And we really felt for them on that day. Uh, many thanks, Danny and Paul. Uh, we're going to take a break now to listen to some music. And when we return, we're going to be speaking with Sue Henderson, author of Things John Didn't Know About, our life after my husband's suicide. We'll be right back after this. You're listening to Yawa Radio and we love to bring you details of the inspirational book of the week. This week's inspirational book is The Wim Hof Method. Activate your potential, transcend your limits. The Sunday Times best-selling Iceman yeah, the Iceman Wim Hof shares his remarkable life story and powerful method for supercharging your strength, health and happiness. Refined over 40 years and championed by scientists across the globe, you'll learn how to harness the three key elements of cold, breathing and mindset to master mind over matter and achieve the impossible. This week's inspirational book of the week is the Sunday Times best-selling Iceman, The Wim method. Activate your potential and transcend your limits. This, this is, is Yawa Radio. Radio. Welcome back. I want you to imagine it's the start of another routine family day. You have two children, one is 27 months and the other just 19 days old. As your partner leaves for work, they give you a kiss, they say they love you and they head out of the door. Several hours later, you receive a visit from two police officers letting you know your partner has ended their own life. How would you react at that moment? How would you deal with the rest of your life, knowing that it was now just you, two very young children, and that everything you had thought your life was going to be had changed forever? I'd like to welcome to Jordan Space, Sue Henderson. Sue, thank you for joining us today. It's a real pleasure to have you be here with Danny, Paul and myself. Oh, thanks, Steve. It's lovely to be here. Thanks for inviting me, and it's good to meet you all. Sue, to start things off, if, if you're okay to talk about this, I'd like to take you back to that day on August the 15th, 2001. Was there anything about John's behaviour or that day that made you consider, even for a moment, that things were going to change so irreversibly? Uh, to be honest, Steve, not not on the actual morning. Um John actually came in to say goodbye. Um, I was still asleep. Cameron was two and a half weeks old and uh, I'd been feeding through the night and was catching sleep when he was sleeping. Um, so he'd he'd come in, he'd said goodbye, he kissed us like he normally did. Um, and he said, I love you, which was not normal. Um, but it was only later that I realized the significance of that. Um, he'd He'd been very unsettled for quite a long time um, leading up to that, a number of months, just 
not happy, um, discussing a lot of things that I knew had troubled him for a long time, um, things that I knew had been part of his um, mental health struggles. Um, but I'd mistakenly thought that the fact that we were talking about it meant that we were maybe working through it and we were going to be able to um, hopefully find a way through it. Um, and of course, it was actually complete opposite. And the fact that he was talking about it meant that it was it was really bad. And I'd, I hadn't clocked that. You know, I was a social worker for 30 years and my you know, my default setting is to talk about stuff. Um, and I'd always tried with John, you know, whenever things were difficult and, you know, that wasn't necessarily about his mental health, but, you know, I was a great believer in get things out in the open, whereas he was completely the opposite with, you know, the kind of let's not or, or he was a problem solver. So it wasn't about talk about it in an emotional way or a feelings way. It was, a you know, how do we fix this? Yeah. And I think, you know, as as you all know very well, I think for an awful lot of people who take their own lives, the problem is a problem that cannot be fixed. And, and for people who are used to fixing things, then that's that's almost the worst aspect of struggling with emotional issues as they might do and that there is no solution in their minds as to yeah. how you fix that. Sue, Sue can I just ask you, when you had those conversations with John, was suicide specifically part of that conversation? No, Paul, it wasn't. John made a first attempt on his life Oh, 1989. It was. I mean, we we knew each other, but we weren't together at that point. We got together a couple of years later, um, and so it was always there in the background. And interestingly, um, when we, when we were first together as a couple, he'd said something. I remember vividly this conversation. We were driving back from friends down south, and uh, he said we, we we were talking about you know, how he was at that point, which was good, you know, mm -hmm. he, you know, had a career in the bank and we were together and, you know, we were talking about, you know, getting married and it was, you know, things were good. Um, but he said, you do know that this, this thing might rear its head again, was what he said. Um, and I always thought that that meant, uh, you know, he might have a wobble, he might have, you know, a, a, a mental health crisis. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we talked about that and I said, you know, I, I get that, you know, whatever it is that you're dealing with. And there were all sorts of things, um, some which were personal and some which were circumstantial, I guess. Um, and uh, I, I thought, yeah, we, we'll deal with this. And I said to him, that's fine. We, we would get through that. But what I realized in retrospect was that he always had it as a as a, a possibility that yeah. in his mind when he said this might rear its head again i i i never really believed it would happen but when when he died i always said to people it was a shock but it wasn't a surprise when i read your book so I, I instantly knew i wanted to have you appear on jordan's space because i felt your story would help a lot of people who have been bereaved by suicide to somehow find the strength and the focus to carry on following such a terrible loss so it's late summer 2001 you have as you mentioned two very young children your daughter Ailey who is 27 months old and your son Cameron who's really still just a baby one of the recollections I have from reading the very beginning of your book was when you describe how you felt a real sense of clarity that day and how you felt as if you knew things and understood things immediately and clearly 
in a way you haven't been able to do since. I understand the memories from that day, which is now, of course, more than 20 years ago, are still very much etched in your mind. Mm, yeah, I, really, really pin-sharp detail. And I, I suppose that's the odd thing about shock, isn't it? You know, for some people, it wipes out the memories and that's a sort of defence mechanism. Um, but for whatever reason, um, it, it kind of etched everything in super clear detail. Um, you know, I remember I remember everything about the police arriving at the door because my mum had been staying with us. You know, Cameron was so little. Mum had been up, you know, in those early baby weeks just helping out. And she had literally left that morning. John had gone off to work. Mum had left after breakfast. And it was about, I mean, probably no more than half an hour or an hour later that the police came to the door. Um, and yeah, I do. I remember everything. I remember the look on their faces. I remember the fact that I'd left Cameron on the changing table upstairs. So I went and got him. And then and, and then I saw the look on their faces, you know, even worse, because they realized that they were about to tell me something and I had this tiny baby. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I do. I remember my thought processes. I remember thinking uh, the first thing was we'll be able to stay in the house because I, you know, I didn't think I could afford to pay you know the mortgage by myself and you know what, what was going to happen and I was you know and I thought oh my god how am I going to tell Ailey you know, the, and, and in the space of seconds all of this stuff happened and then you know we had to get hold of various people who am I going to phone and then thinking well all my friends are at work you know I don't want to I don't want to disturb them and then you know actually the police very lovely police officer said I think I think you should just phone anybody so two friends arrived very quickly um, but yeah, no, I remember it all really, really clearly. It's interesting. I think I can really relate to that. And I think for people listening who've not been through this might think it odd to suddenly see how we go into such a practical yeah. kind of mode. Yeah. And, and, yeah. Danny, look, I, I know we probably haven't ever dis discussed this, have we? But I don't know, you know, your own recollections of that day. I mean, following my call, you know, are the, mm. uh, is, is that day very clear for you, Danny, as well, in, in your mind? Uh, yeah, no, I was just thinking about sort of what Sue was saying and just remembering how clearly I think sort of very prominent events do tend to sort of stick in your mind and you remember where you mm, were and what you yeah. were doing at sort of specific times, don't you? But um, yeah, I can remember the day very clearly down to very minute sort of details. But yeah, I think it's just, as you say, it's that, that shock, isn't it? It does seem to sort of wipe the memory for some people, but for others, sort of every detail seems to sort of stick. So I understand the idea for your book came to you very early on. In, in fact, you began working on the content for a book about men and the pressures that they face in particular during the first years, uh, first three years following John's mm. death. However, I believe that it was another book you read in around 2004 that made you decide to shelve your own plans to publish. And in the end, it was some 15 years later before you finally did publish your own book. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I suppose it, it the, the original idea um and it was all about why there is this incredible pressure on younger men um john was only 35 when he died um and i i i suppose it was part of me trying to channel my energy into making sense of it because um i, I knew enough about it um we'd, we'd lived with suicide in my family my aunt took her own life when i was uh, about 15 and she'd had mental health issues she had anorexia and bulimia so you know I'd grown up knowing what mental health in a family you know 
poor mental health in a family looked like and and, and to have dealt with that and um so there were always conversations about it but you know in John's case he was a polymath you know he was this incredible character he he loved life this was the irony of it you know I think he did so many extreme sports he did ice climbing he did mountaineering he did scuba diving he was always pushing the boundaries of what was safe and I I'd always known that there was this bit with John where I think there was a really close a close relationship between life and death that he did things that absolutely put himself on the edge and I think he he respected life but he didn't fear death if that makes sense I think mm -hmm. it, there was always something about him playing on that boundary I'd always I'd always understood that in him um he was a, a really smart guy you know he was very academic did well at school did well at uni um was very yeah, it, it was funny because he ended up working in the bank but that I think came from his very conventional background you know, his parents were quite conventional people and I think he felt that's what he should do but you know I was saying earlier about the last few months when we were having all of these conversations and he was saying things like oh, I just you know I'd love to go and build wooden boats in the north of Scotland and I would I'd say because I knew how hard he was finding things and I said well why don't we do that I said I don't care about any of this this house this you know him having a company car you know that none of that was important and there was I think there was a bit of him that would really love to have done that but I think he was torn with this bit about being the father who had to provide for the family and have this kind of very um, important role um, and he couldn't fit how how that would work with going and living a slightly more unconventional life doing something which he would have seen as slightly more indulgent um yeah it's, it's really interesting I, you know again we talk <clears> a lot about you know what leads people to to the point where they decide to end their own lives and we often talk about this this sense of entrapment if you yeah, like and, absolutely. And, and that sense of entrapment is self-created quite often yeah, but exactly you know, in john's case he there was something he wanted to do but maybe through himself yeah. felt, felt trapped that he must exactly. commit to this role yeah and, yeah and I think that that's a really interesting point yeah. I started writing this book about men and and what life is like for men um and I had it all laid out in chapters and it was sort of about uh, you know how to be in the world as a man and when do boys learn how to you know button up and stiff up a lip and all of that and why aren't men allowed to show their feelings and how you know the loss of you know rites of passage for men to move into manhood in a sort of helpful supportive mentored way and you know toxic masculinity and all of this kind of stuff anyway I then read Manhood by Steve Biddulph and realized that not only was it most of my book almost the chapter headings were identical <laughs> and, and I just thought okay well great you know he's written a really good book so I'll, I'll leave that with him and it kind of served the purpose for me I'd done enough thinking and it helps shake some ideas up and then as you said 15 years later I suppose I was approaching my 50th birthday and I thought I actually have to get all of this stuff out of me yeah. I, it, it was swimming around in my head and I, you know I just thought I, this might be helpful for people no I don't, I don't want to spoil the read for anyone intending on purchasing yeah. a copy of your book and, and look we will put the details of where they can purchase it on our website with a recording of today's broadcast um could you provide our listeners with a kind of a summary of what they should expect when they read it Who, who is it aimed at and what would you hope they take away from reading it yeah um i i suppose 
when I did start writing and it stopped just being some way of, as I say, getting my thoughts and ideas out. Initially, I thought it was very much going to be directed or, or might be helpful for people who had direct experience of suicide um, and had been affected by suicide in some very direct way. But I think it probably there's enough um, in it that could generally speak to people who had lost somebody in any way, uh, not just through suicide. Um, and, I, and I guess the other thing and I know this from sort of anecdotal evidence from people I know who have read the book, is I, I hoped that it might speak to people who were really struggling with their own mental health and it might help them see the impact. If, if they were ever, ever at a point where they might be having suicidal thoughts, that they mm -hmm. might see what the impact on the people they love is because I think for a lot of people they're so I mean we know people are you know when they are so desperate and that is the only solution that they think they have to what's going on they're not thinking about the impact or the fact that they are so loved and that they will be missed I know that people have read it who have had suicidal intent in the past who have said it has made a difference so I'm really interested in a lot of what you're saying there around the content around what happened around the process of writing the book. Uh, my wife has written a, a memoir, which was, was very therapeutic about her discovering she was dyslexic. And mm -hmm. it's suddenly making a lot of things make sense. Mm. But loss, loss is something that a lot of people still seem to struggle to talk about. So mm. as you've said, there's suicide loss, which has this particular impact. But uh, do you think that people, a lot of people still have difficulty uh, talking about loss in a, in a more general sense? Mm. Yes, I think people do um, find it really difficult. I, I, I'm very lucky. I, I'm surrounded by my family and uh, a lot of very good friends who are very good at talking about stuff. And, and um, we, we always talked. The, my children have grown up, you know, knowing stories about their dad and, and, and talking about him um, and also talking about the pain of that. Um, and I suppose the thing with the book that I hoped I could get across was um, the, the reality of what loss feels like day to day. Um, mm -hmm. You know, that, that, um, that process, which is, I mean, to say roller coaster is, is hackneyed, but it is, you know, there are peaks and troughs of how you feel. And some days are horrendous and you feel as if you're dragging yourself through treacle and, um, and it's painful and there are other days when you think you're you know you're superwoman because you've actually achieved you know huge things that you know in the circumstances you you wouldn't imagine and I wanted to convey that I I was not coherent for months I mean I was I was going through the motions I was you know I was living life I was looking after the children but in terms of actually being able to express myself in terms of um really being able to put things clearly and I suppose that's why Paul in answer to your question I ended up writing the book when I did yeah because, because it was a different book than it would have been 10 years earlier or you know two years after John died yeah. and I think what I wanted to convey was that that real you know it's not heroic it's not you know I wasn't I mean, I say, say this in the book, you know, I, I, I wasn't the kind of person who was going to run marathons or Steve set up uh, an amazing 
organization like you have I, I didn't have that in me what I was doing when I was raising my children and I was you know I suppose the thing was trying to protect them and give them as much resilience as possible given the loss that they were going to carry through their lives and I, and I suppose that's the thing Paul isn't it you know when you have very little children and their father takes their life that is going to be part of their makeup forever mm -hmm. let alone the genetic bit which has always been at the back of my mind is you know trying to protect their genetic legacy if you like and to to bolster them against that but just the knowledge that their their father did what he did um and so yeah loss is i mean it doesn't you know we're not miserable people but it inevitably is part of our life yeah, I think it's really interesting for you to reflect on it because a lot of the people we talk to who've experienced loss and experienced suicide loss, they talk about how their lives have changed subsequently. So whenever you write that book and publish that book, clearly would change depending upon when you wrote it. Is it Absolutely. just is it about the story of your loss or is it about that message that you want to give to other people or a combination of both? A, a bit of both, to be brutally honest, and I think because I, I, you know, it's 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 our personal story, but with bits of my social work knowledge and understanding of, you know, the the emotional processes that we went through, and it hopefully covers both of those things. Um, and yeah, I, I suppose that part of part of my book is showing that there is language that you can use to talk about loss in a way because I think it's very difficult I think a lot of people find it difficult to talk about any issues in their lives you know a, a, a diagnosis of illness and you know uh, adoption even you know having done the work I did for years people don't necessarily know how to find the words and I think if if the way that I've written the book which I think is quite conversational and and easy reading um helps people find words and find the language then then hopefully that will be helpful well look i can highly recommend uh, the book which as i mentioned earlier is called things john didn't know about our life after my husband's suicide so thank you so much for now uh, let's take a break and when we come back i'd like to chat with you about how ailey and cameron have, have dealt with their father's loss and particularly how you dealt with the whole issue of explaining to them that the dad had died by suicide we'll be back in a few minutes Hello, hello, Russell here. Please come join me every Saturday, 3 till 6pm, for Russell's Resilience Radio Show. Fantastic music and resilience tips every Saturday, 3 till 6pm. Welcome back. You're listening to Jordan Space, and we're talking with author Sue Henderson, whose book, Things John Didn't Know About, Our Life After My Husband's Suicide, has been described as a personal story that captures the distress, disbelief, and the questioning that often occurs following a bereavement by suicide, but also the need to recover and to survive as a family. One of the things that struck me about your book, Sue, is that it isn't just a personal story, as we said earlier. It's, it's clear that your background working in social care meant that you were able to bring an almost professional perspective at times when writing, and yet it's also balanced with some wry humour, even when discussing what is, of course, a really painful subject. Was the style of the book something you considered at length, or is this kind of part of who you are? And how much of surviving, if I can use that term, is, is down to who you are now, do you think? I suppose I've always been a kind of get-on-with-it kind of person. Um, there was no option for me 
but but to get on with it um I think you know I had the children to look after and so I was always going to um have to get up in the morning and um and I threw myself into being their mum I guess and it was it was I, I think part of my grieving process was um deflected and deferred and um I don't know whether that was a, a good thing or not, but by keeping very, very busy, uh, it's always been a strategy. People who know me well know I still um, probably cram too much into any one day. But yeah, I think that that was part of me. And I think in terms of the style of the book, um, you know, as I said earlier, I, as, when I started writing, I didn't quite know what it was going to be. But very, very quickly, as soon as I started putting things down in words, I knew that that. I wanted it to be accessible. I knew it wanted, I wanted it to feel um, conversational in the sense that I want people to feel that it was it was uh, personal, but with those element, elements of social work or theory or whatever you want to call them. So the, the, the theme for today's show is, is coping with loss, of course. And aside from dealing with your own grief, uh, as you mentioned, of course, you have two young children who lost their father to suicide when they were extremely young. In, in fact, you describe in your book how Ailey still has memories of, mm. of her dad, and despite only being 27 months old, but but Cam, of course, um, would have been too young to remember John. I mean, it hasn't caused difficulties between them, but it, it means that their, their grieving has been different because yeah. of it. You know, the Jordan legacy, we've had numerous discussions and debates with others working in this sector about when is it appropriate to discuss suicide with a child? And uh, in your book, I know you were very clear about how you wanted to approach this issue with Ailey and, and Cameron. Would you explain how you went about this and all these years later, how you feel that's worked out? The worst thing I've ever had to do, you can imagine it's not something um, that anybody would relish doing. Um, I, um, I, I knew... I, I was going to always be as truthful as possible, but I had not told them that when he fell from a high place that he chose to do that. So they'd known that that happened. He was a hill walker. It, it could have been part of the narrative that that happened quite naturally. And, and that was fine until Ailey, who was always a very curious child, started asking more and more searching questions. Um, and I'd always known I would want to tell them the truth but I, I suppose I felt I needed them to, um, to be cognitively ready for it. Um, and also that I, I was going to tell them together. So it was about both of them being at the right point. So I suppose when Ailey started asking questions like, but mum, he was a really good hill walker. Why was he too close to the edge? And I thought, well, this is going to, you know, she's not going to, she's not going to take my answers anymore unless it's the truth. So I decided I would tell them at the beginning of the Easter holiday, I knew we were going to be together for a few weeks after that. They weren't going to have to go into school and deal with it, you know, and not be at home. And, and I hadn't officially scripted it, but in my head, I knew the kind of language I wanted to use that was going to be as unscary as possible and as appropriate for their ages. Ailey was seven and Cam was five. Anyway, we went to um, one of the castles on the coast here and... Uh, Ailey has refused to go back. She has never, ever wanted to go back to it um, because she still sees it as one of the worst days of her life. Um, and she was really angry. She was angry with me for not having told her before. Um, and she was angry just, you know, and, and sad. Um, 
I think, you know, one of the questions I remember on the day was her saying, but why was he always so happy? He always seemed happy. And I had to say to her, well, he was. He, he, he loved being your dad and he, you know, he was happy. But the illness that he had meant that there was another bit to him. And so from that very beginning, I knew that I, there, were, there were words I was going to have to find over the years to explain it to them whenever their questions came. And of course, questions come at the most inopportune moments you know you're cooking dinner or you're doing something unexpected and then they say but that that bit about dad and then there would have to be a way of finding finding an explanation I, I think for me and I can't speak for the children I I think I, I think it was right to tell them when I did I I could have told them earlier and I suppose I felt it was going to be a diminishing mystery they knew the worst and anything else that they learnt was only going to help them hopefully make some sense of it. So did the loss of John um, with having the children, did it help you in your recovery, having the children to focus on that? Or or how do you think it sort of affected you having the children? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think it's a really good question, Danny. I, 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 it, my answer is is mostly yes, it absolutely did. I, I think I said earlier, it, it was my reason for getting up every day. Um, it, we did, we had so much fun as well. You know, in the middle of everything else, there was a lot of fun stuff, you know, all the inevitable stuff that you have of, of you know, young children. And I mean, in the early years, I mean, what I said previously about, you know, the first day being pin sharp and remembering all of that, we agreed that that is almost, you know, often the way. There's a lot of fog in the years that followed, a lot of foggy memories, and you know it's all a bit vague. But what I do know, and you know, it, it was just you know I I was raising the kids and having a having a great time with them. You know all the usual ups and downs of kids. Um, you know there were times when I wanted to pull my hair out and not having a partner coming home every night. You know, like any single parent, that's that's tough at times. Um, but no. You know, the overwhelming answer is yeah it, it was amazing my situation obviously was was slightly different but obviously yeah and losing my brother and yeah you know having the children I think did actually help to kind of give me a focus because maybe I yeah. wouldn't have got out of bed in the morning but you have to don't you when you have yeah. children you have yeah. to carry on yeah and um, yeah I remember the very first night that it happened it happened that day and my smallest who was only three or four then still wanted me to read him his bedtime story and it was yeah. like you know we had to sort of carry on doing these very practical yeah. things in, a, in yeah. a very sort of surreal situation yeah I'm sure you all had that bit where you had you carried on doing normal things and you know you're out in the world and especially with children Danny you know you're doing that bit where you, you're apparently doing normal things but you're screaming inside your head and saying you know in your case my brother has just died and I was screaming in my head you know my husband's just died (laughs) and nobody knows because you don't look mad but you feel it. I I always see an irony that with older people with adults or uh, or older uh, kids you know that we we talk about you know importance of asking direct questions um, and we also talk about we shouldn't have these conversations necessarily you know with kids too young and yet younger kids are often the more direct questions are that they ask and sometimes the easier it is to have the the conversation so from a professional point of view I've always been fascinated by that but Mm. also I'm just wondering from a personal experience perspective 
have the conversations that you've had with Ailey and Cam changed over time? Uh, are they still, you know, very open? Are there times when they want to talk, times they don't want to talk? Uh, mm. Are there times when you think you might want to talk, but they maybe mm. don't want to talk? Mm. Mm. We talked from the very beginning. I mean, even before they knew that John had taken his own life, we always told stories about him. Mm. And I suppose uh, while they were younger and even after they knew that that um, he had taken his own life, um, the stories were very positive. I think as they've got older, what I have done is added in more and more of the bits of John that were more conflicted and mm. more difficult to live with. And because, partly because I didn't want, you know, for me as the, the single mum who's left behind and has had to be good cop, bad cop all these years, I didn't want him to be on the pedestal as the super dad that they might have had, but actually yeah. I needed them to know that he would have been quite difficult at times as well. They have both had mental health wobbles over the years. They've, they've had times when things have been difficult and we've, we've worked really hard together um, and with some outside help um, to help them develop strategies, you know, to, um, as I mentioned earlier, to build resilience. What I hope is that we we are still as open and honest as, as we ever can be when we're talking. I think they come to me whenever they need to talk about big stuff, um, but they have really good friends. They have other people that they can talk to. And I, I, I feel quite confident that they will continue to do that. Yeah, I think it's interesting what you say as well about about when they're sort of cognitively ready to, you know, hear something that you may yeah. tell them and that's yeah. something people, I suppose, need to consider if yeah. they're going to tell children, you know, are, are the children yeah. ready or... Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, I you know, I, I said it before, you know, they are amazing young people. I am so proud of them and I, you know, it is the, the greatest regret is that their dad doesn't see what they've achieved and what they've what they've done in their lives so so thank you for agreeing to come on jordan's space and today and look before you go we we always like to to end the show on a, on a message of hope and if you had one message for yourself thinking back to that place 21 years ago what message of hope would you give to your younger self on that day back in august 2001 yeah I suppose I, you know, I would, I would tell me, uh, and I would say this to, to anybody else going through something similar is um, you will survive, you will get through this. Um, you'll not just survive, you will thrive. Um, the children will be fine. And just remember to ask for help. Don't think you can do this all by yourself, because that was a, a big issue for me. And don't don't not ask for help. So thank you so, so much. Um, we're going to take a short break and uh, Danny, Paul and myself will be back for a brief uh, roundup and chat about today's show. And we'll see you all very soon after this. Hi, this is Steve. Join me every day of the week from seven through till 10 for Yower Breakfast right here on Yower Radio. Probably the best way to start your day. Make a day, join me every day, seven till 10, Yower Breakfast right here on Yow Radio. Well, Danny, Paul, um, a wonderful interview with uh, with Sue there. I think, you know, I've learned a, a lot. And I think a lot of people will find that really helpful who are going through a, a similar situation of having lost someone very close to, to suicide. Uh, I think the general theme today uh, of loss o overall, um, 
uh, is is uh, I think it's just been really really interesting. I think uh, Sue made a really relevant point that you know in her book the the subject of loss she was hoping would it be relevant to people who'd lost people in different ways, not necessarily just to to suicide. Um, you know, Danny, just you know from an overall show perspective this week, what's the one thing that's kind of stood out for you as far as loss in general is concerned? Yeah, I think it's just really how loss can impact everybody differently and I think it's really important that we're all aware of this and how we react to people who who have lost someone close to them yeah and I think you know and again it could be loss of a pet couldn't it could be loss of a job it could be you know cancellation of events as we've talked about you know loss is going to affect people in different ways and I think you're absolutely right we've just got to be kind of conscious of everyone's losses important to them how about yourself Paul what have you taken away particularly from this week yeah, it's been good to focus on it and look at it a little bit more broadly. You know, loss is a, is a trauma experience and people relive that experience and, and people deal with it in different ways. And Sue was given some great insights there. One of the things I remember from my counselling training is, is when people do experience loss, one of the things they need most is practical support. So we tend to sort of think it's emotional and psychological support, but often at the time it's really practical support. And she's thinking about, you know, the house and paying the mortgage and, so sometimes that compounded trauma that people have, which actually causes suicides or causes more people to be in suicidal distress, is the lack of practical support. So I think that's an important message. Very interesting, I think. One of the things that sticks in my mind from Sue there is when she finally had that conversation with uh, Alien Cam, it was not in the, in the home, which I think was really important. It was outside. It was at the castle. It's a place that Ailey doesn't want to go back which is understandable, but there may come a point in her life where she does want to go back. Uh, and that's why we need to just keep having those conversations openly over time. Well, look, that, that's all we have time for uh, on this week's Jordan Space and until our next show on the 13th of October. My thanks to Danny and Paul, as always, and of course, to our guest, Sue Henderson. Thank you for listening too. I hope you found today's show informative. And if you have any comments or questions about the points discussed today, please find us on Twitter at Jordan Legacy UK or at the same address on Instagram. You can also visit our website and get in touch there at thejordanlegacy.com. From me, Steve Phillip, and everyone here at the Jordan Legacy, look after yourselves and those close to you. And we look forward to having you join us for our next show very soon. A big thank you for taking the time out to listen to this podcast from the team at Yawa Radio. Remember to check us out live online 24 hours a day, seven days a week at yawaradio.co.uk. And if you'd like to join us as a guest on Yawa Radio or as a guest on the Yawa Radio podcast, we would love to hear from you. Simply email studio at yawaradio.co.uk. UK. Once again, a big thank you for taking the time out to listen. This is the Yawa Radio Podcast. Copyright applies. With inspirational guests from around the world, inspirational quotes, the inspirational book of the week, the meditation hour, the quiet zone and feel good music. Yawa Radio is about well-being, happiness and finding the beauty within. Enjoy. Be beautiful. Be happy. Be inspired. This is Yawa Radio.